Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the ANU, and I'm also Director of the Children's Policy Centre. I'm in Burnie once again this week for recording, and so we're recording remotely, but undergraduate, I'm hoping my sound quality isn't too bad. I know it's sometimes a little bit scratchy when one of us are on the road. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound too bad. How's the weather down in Burnie at the moment, Sharon? Are you seeing much flooding in in Tasmania like we're seeing across New South Wales? Uh, There there was flooding uh, a few weeks back. There's there's not so much flooding at the moment. There's a lot of water around. There was also snow on Monday to about 400 metres. So it's been cold. Yeah, very interesting for, for almost summertime in Australia. It's crazy. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. We offer a fantastic array of degree programs, as well as short courses and executive training. If you're interested in looking at what we have on offer, you can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And we would love to have you come and study with us. Sharon, we're partway through this series of conversations on housing. How did you find last week's conversation with Fazana Chowdhury and Joel Dignam? I thought that was a terrific conversation. And what I really enjoyed about it was both Joel and Fazana are really at the coalface of some of these issues. And so it was incredibly powerful to get those insights into what life is really like for people when they're struggling with issues of housing affordability and and access to housing. And I really like the way that both Joel and Fazana framed these issues as being about social justice, as being about human rights. I think we might have a little bit more of that conversation today, Anna Greta. Sharon, I'm just finding this series of conversations on housing quite an extraordinary one, and I'm so looking forward to today. Housing's an extraordinary opportunity to speak about all sorts of the policy challenges that we face, and we know we've heard that talking not just last week, but also with Barbara Norman beforehand. And so we're delighted to continue today's discussion with the third instalment of our bundle of episodes on housing. Last week, we talked about the housing access and justice But this week, we're going to take a closer look at affordability and the sorts of opportunities we might have to reform a system that is in crisis. 
According to Anglicare Australia's 2022 affordability snapshot, the situation in the rental market has become a crisis for families with far-reaching effects. In its first budget, the new federal government launched a national housing accord with the intention of improving housing supply and affordability. But will this make a difference? So today on the pod, we have Executive Director of Anglicare Australia and great friend of the show, Casey Chambers, with us to discuss the challenges in Australia's housing system and offer some ways forward. Casey, could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes, certainly, and and thanks for that lovely and warm welcome. So, um, as you say, my name's Casey. I'm the Executive Director of Anglicare Australia, which means that I work with um, welfare agencies right across Australia and also New Zealand and a little bit in Papua New Guinea, interestingly. But, um, you know, those agencies work with uh, one in every 19 Australians. And what we keep hearing right across the age range, right across every kind of issue that we're that we're um, walking alongside those people with whether it's mental health disability poverty financial well-being sure whatever it is housing seems to be at the at the the base of it one way or another so the absolute importance of housing the absolute centrality of it to people's welfare it's something that gets us very passionate Mm. So, Casey, in, in fact, ahead of the last federal election, you said that there's never been a better time for candidates and political parties to step up and to make sure that every Australian has a home. Why do you think it's such an important time for policymakers to take action to address housing affordability? It seems like um, one of those sliding door moments. It seems like a time when we can do something. And if we don't, it will get much, much, much worse. So we've been tracking rentals. We, we keep an eye on private rentals, um, simply because that's often the exit point for people from homelessness. And it's often the place where um, Australian policy seeks to house people on lower and middle incomes. That affordability has been dropping. It's always been abysmal for people on government payments, but it's been really dropping for people on minimum wage and that, and that, that kind of area. So there is, it's been a, it's, that's been quite a recent um, decrease. And so it seems to us that this is one of those times where we can in, inter, you know, jump in. Also, the pandemic you know, it gave us a lot of natural experiments and it gave us time to think a little bit and it really did bring out, again, the importance of housing. You know, if you were locked in for, for the best part of 18 months, that, that quality of your housing then dictated whether your children did well at school or not. You know, if they were on um, remote schooling, it dictated how your relationships were. And, of course, it also really had a big impact on whether you caught COVID and whether when you did catch it, uh, how you recovered from it. So it really was a time where we had a natural experiment that was proving it to everybody um, and where it's time where I think, I don't want to sound alarmist, but one of the last chances to catch those levers before we go down a slope where we accept a level of homelessness that we haven't currently seen and that I think to any fair-minded person would just be abysmal. Casey, you you said at the outset the way in which housing often underpins almost everything else for people and, you know, as, as our regular listeners know, we're doing work at the moment, research at the moment with children about their experiences of poverty and, and we are seeing so powerfully amongst children the way in which housing or the absence of housing just shapes everything about their lives. 
Um, and as you said, you know, the nature of that housing and, and whether it's safe and whether it's secure. But it's it's often, or at the moment, there are particular challenges facing people who are renting. And every year, Anglicare produces a rental affordability snapshot, which tests the affordability of rental properties for people who are on low incomes in particular. Can you tell us about what what you found this year, Casey? Yeah, so um, thanks, Sharon. It's, it's, as, I say, as you say, it's something we've done for 10 years now. Uh, we keep asking ourselves if we're going to keep doing it because it's, you know, we're measuring 0.00 of a percent when we're looking at affordability for people on um, government benefits. But um, we couldn't stop, really. I don't think the media would like to stop apart from anything else. But basically what we do is we look at every um, rental property that's advertised on the private rental market at a particular time, a particular weekend. We have developed 14 different households. That they are you know, households that we model. And we, we basically have a massive spreadsheet that tells us how much an affordable rent would be for that particular household. So the households might be a, a couple on the age pension. It might be a single person working full-time on the minimum wage, might be a single person on the disability support pension, a single person on job seeker payment. And even, you know, if our most complex household is um, a couple with two children with one working full time and one studying part time. Um, the international benchmark for housing affordability, if you're on a limited income, is that you shouldn't be spending any more than 30% of your income on that housing. So it's quite an easy ruler to run across, really. And then we um, munch the figures and push the button. And, you know, this year we find, for example, and, and unfortunately these are quite standard findings, that if you're a single person on job seeker, so that's, you know, the dole, the lowest of the, of the payments, a single person person would have found seven affordable properties out of 46,000 that we surveyed this year. Now, that's quite a low number. Um, so that tells us a story about availability. Last year, we surveyed 74,000 properties. So, you know, there's just a drop in availability this year. And that, that's a story in and of itself. But seven um, places, and, and that's seven, not 7%. The other thing is worth mentioning, just to really give um, people the picture of this is, when we talk about a single person and we think about what would be appropriate for them, and that would, those are what we measure, we take into account rooms and share houses. So that includes that. So if I then go to, let's say, um, a couple on the age pension, so the kind of dwelling that we'd be looking at for them to be appropriate would be a one-bedroom place uh, or even a studio. Um, 1.4% of the places that we surveyed would have been affordable, so less than 1.5%. Um, and you know, we, we, we're very concerned about older renters. We've done some research on that, which we might talk about later. But perhaps the most interesting thing that happened this year is when we looked at people on the minimum wage, so we've got one household type that is two people on the minimum wage, mum and dad, or, you know, two adults, two kids. Um, we factor in, by the way, Commonwealth rental assistance. We factor in family tax benefit for this family, everything they get. 
we were absolutely shocked to find that only 3.7% of the properties would have been affordable. This used to be around the 20% mark that family type would have found. This has absolutely plummeted in the last year and or two. It really is a very telling thing about how appropriate the rental market is. Um, and how appropriate it is that we continue to ask the private rental market to do the heavy lifting for affordable housing in Australia. Mm. Casey, those numbers are horrifying. They really are, uh, particularly when we're thinking about people who are living in a precarious place. Mm. It's extraordinary to think how someone would access the one of seven properties around the nation. You've touched a little bit on it, but I'm wondering how the affordability picture has changed, not just in the last year or two, but maybe in the last decade or so. Mm. Have we been in this situation before or is this the worst picture that you've seen painted? It's it's the worst. Um, Look, job seeker and use allowance, they are always low. Uh, One particularly famous year, we found one property that was affordable for someone on use use allowance. And it happened to be in Canberra. So we went and had a look at it. (laughs) And uh, we we found that it was a living room in in a share house. And so what this meant was this one room was affordable. Um, But you know, you would have to set yourself up. um, You wouldn't be able to go to bed to live one else had gone to bed you couldn't get up after everybody else uh you couldn't have a partner around if you did have a child it's an unsafe place and so what we don't do with this survey is we don't look at these properties in general we don't assess assess them for accessibility so even for example where we look at the disability support pension um and that's you know a lot of people listening would know that that's a slightly more generous um payment if you were a single on that, you would have found 0.1 of a percent was affordable. Now, we haven't tested those for um, accessibility. And because that's a single person, we would also be counting in a, um, a share a share room, a room in a share house, simply for one person on an age pension. And this is a harsh thing to say, but when I was sharing a house in my 20s, I don't think we'd have looked at somebody in their 70s. And when I'm in my 70s, if I get to be that old, I really don't want to share with 20 year olds so you know now that might just be me but um the reality of whether you would get any of these properties is really very very low and of course what that means is that we see people spending way way more than 30 percent so this is a this is a 30 percent ruler because of that international standard on affordable housing um it's just, it really is impossible. And um, the other things that go with this is that we see an insecurity in this housing as well. Um, and that is one of the problems with the private rental market, as opposed to, you know, a, um, a more institutional investor. Casey, it's, I mean, I'm still reeling from those numbers. I mean, mm. they are really confronting numbers. Um, and, and it's horrifying to, to think what people are facing. You talked about rental unaffordability as being when it's more than 30% of a household budget. Are you able to talk us through why that international benchmark is as it is? And perhaps also from the the conversations that you have uh, with the people that you support, what are the implications for an individual or for a family when they're spending much more than 30% on rent. I mean, I think we can imagine it, but it would be great to hear from you, um, you know, what what people have told you about um, 
what their lives become when they're paying 30, 40, 50%, 60% of of their their income on on rent. Yeah, and um, we have actually heard from people who we've worked out are up around the 78% of of their income. Um, So if you think about Job Seeker at about $334 a week, what we're saying there is if you look at the 30%, that's a very easy one to do even for me, uh, $334. If, if we take 30% of that, it's kind of $110. So that leaves somebody, if we if we apply that fairly, with $220 left over for heating, cooling, water, health, food, um, you know, you name it, everything. That that's not that's not a price that anyone can do any longer. And of course we know there is nothing available at $110 a week. So the conversations we have with people, um, I tell you what, just to digress, if anybody ever needs a financial manager for their business, take someone who's lived on a government benefit because they are the best budgeters, they are the best mathematicians almost, uh, you know, in, in terms of adding and subtracting. These are people that are continually balancing. They, they know more about cash flow than any chartered accountant because they really are balancing every single week what they're going to buy and what they what they can, you know, who they can palm off for a little bit longer in terms of debt. Um, they know where the bargains are. And now, unfortunately, the thing that tends to go, rent is not elastic. The, the, the landlord, you can't say, look, I'm in really difficult times, so I'm not going to use that call of the living room can you take this many square meters off my rent or um would you this week take you know half the rent that's not usually a conversation that people are able to have and and that's you know there's an intermediary in this usually um there's usually a real estate agent who negotiates these kind of things so the kind of things that are elastic are insurance payments they're people's prescriptions alarmingly it's the quality and then quantity of food we have just heartbreaking stories of parents who keep their child home from school on the last couple of days of the pay fortnight because they can't afford to put decent food in the lunchbox and they don't want their child stigmatised for an empty lunchbox. It's it's more common than, than not for parents to tell us that their children can't have other kids home from school because they're embarrassed. They can't put a snack on the table when the kids come in and so they don't want a friend seeing that. So those are the kind of things that people do in order to make the rent payment um, because people are also very, very frightened of losing those rental properties. I alluded earlier to the fact that we've seen a halving in um, availability of, of rentals this year. And to the extent where we, we questioned it, we went back to our real estate partner and, and really ran the figures again. And yeah, it's just what has happened. Uh, and um, people are terrified of losing their rental pro- property because, again, if you lose it, you're thinking about kids moving school, you're thinking about the expense of turning over the um, the utilities, the expense of a new bond, all those kind of things. You know, I think a fairly conservative estimate on the cost of moving is about $4,000. Uh, and that's just, you know, the, the costs. Um, that doesn't involve sort of the emotional stress, particularly if it's not a move that's of your making. Casey, some of, of what you're saying around um, children not being able to bring uh, 
friends home because there's no money for a snack, children not going to school because there's nothing to put in the lunchbox, are, are things that we are seeing in our um, in our research as well. And I just wanted to add the the other thing that we're seeing in some cases is because people are under such incredible pressure because their rents are so high, they can't afford food, they can't afford anything else, is the fear that people also have or the fear that parents have that child protection will intervene because their child is being neglected. And I think this is a, a shocking situation that we often see where poverty is mistaken for neglect. Um, and when we have such high housing costs, then poverty becomes very deep. And, and what we're seeing is that real fear amongst people that if they ask for help or if anyone knows how dire their situation is, that their children may be removed because they seem to be neglected. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, we everyone we speak to, the kids eat first, parents don't eat. Um, you know, uh, you hear of, of kids who realise that they've grown up in poverty who talk about their mum eating wheat bix um, and things like that for dinner. But, yeah, it's, it's a real fear. We have people coming to our emergency services who don't tell us that they've got children because they are afraid of how that looks if they're needing to ask for food. And what that means, of course, is that those children become invisible um, to services where we could theoretically assist them and where we might end up treat, might end up working with someone as if they're an adult alone when there might actually be children in that household. So it's a very, very difficult um, situation for those parents. And of course, it's very, very difficult to ask for help and to trust that you can, who you can tell what to, particularly if you come from a family or a culture where child removal and, and the welfare uh, and all those names have been a part of your familial and, and cultural history. These are really difficult stories. They're extraordinarily confronting and particularly in one of the wealthiest countries in mm. the world for these situations to not be uncommon uh, deserves a tremendous amount of attention. Casey, I'd love to hear your perspective on the dynamic between the housing affordability crisis and increasing and changing rates of homelessness. What's that dynamic in the real world like? Um, I think a lot of people will be familiar that one of the um, largest groups of, of homeless, of the largest demographics is older women. Um and also one of the other largest groups of homeless people is children under under 13. And, you know, th those two demographics just say that we're getting something very wrong and that there won't be just one answer. But um, it is every time we see a squeeze anywhere in the housing market, it everything falls down. So people with high-end mortgages might swap to a lower-cost house. People in those lower costs move into rental. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying this, obviously. But what it does mean is that there is more and more and more competition for lower-cost rents. Um, and that, that puts the cost of rents up, of course. But it also means that there just aren't those places for someone who is a single parent or who, um, you know, perhaps is, is a single person living on a very limited income. And so what we typically see is then people slide into casual housing, um, you know, couch surfing or um, living in someone's garage. Um, I live in Canberra. It's the richest city 
in the richest in one of the richest countries. If you go for a trot around the suburbs, if you run around the back lanes, you will see most many, many garages and sheds have lights on. And when you look in, you can see people at the kitchen sink. Um, and certainly during the bushfires a couple of years ago, many firefighters who were fighting fires in, in farmland and things were coming across those those casual houses, you know, caravans, um, not much more than, than than a shack that were being used full time. So we've certainly seen people move in, into that sort of um, casual housing. And then, of course, it you know, we're seeing more and more competition for our services in, in housing services. So it really is, we're turning more people away from homelessness services. It's becoming a more common thing. And that in itself is really awful. The fact that it's becoming an usual thing for us to walk past somebody who's sitting outside the supermarket. And it's becoming a usual thing for our housing services to turn away somewhere with someone with three or four children. And increasingly, people who are working. So, you know, our homes and services have got people who are working and have children, you have families that you really would think would be the bread and butter of the private rental market and just cannot cannot um, make it in that market any longer. So it is a little bit of a, a trickle down almost. If, if something happens anywhere, um, it, it, it trickles into, or it, well, it, it moves downwards through all those levels of services. But certainly homelessness is really increasing. And, and of course, it has been exacerbated in many areas of the country and is being, as we speak, in Western New South Wales by the, the natural disasters that we're seeing more and more frequently. Casey, you know, you, you're talking about um, the stress that housing services are under and, and what that, that means for people. And I, I recall as you're, as you're talking a very confronting conversation I had about six or seven weeks ago with a 13-year-old boy who described accompanying his mum to um, a housing service and his mum in tears explaining that she has five children, the youngest is only seven. Um, she was terrified of, of what was going to happen to the children because they couldn't find somewhere to live. And the provider explained to her that having five children and living in your car at the moment is not enough to get you to the hot top of the housing priority list because the demand is just so, so great. And it's very confronting to hear a child talking about those experiences and how he felt um, to be turned away through no fault of the service, mm. but to be turned away and told that he and his family, in his mind, weren't important enough yeah. To be able to get to the top of the list, it's it's very very disturbing, to put it mildly. Casey, just before we we go to a break, what what is it that has led us into this situation? Now, this is a huge question that we'll, we'll talk a lot more about. But but what do you think have been some of the the main drivers for for pushing us into this situation? I think it's way, way more than supply and demand. Um, that, that is a temptingly 
easy answer. Um, and I think it's one that was disproven during the pandemic because if it was supply and demand, again, we had this natural experiment. We closed off the pipeline of immigration. We closed off the pipeline of overseas tourists. And yet we saw homelessness and housing, homelessness get worse and housing get tighter. So I think that that possibly, I'm going to use that as evidence that we, we can rule aside supply and demand. I actually think it's a fundamental philosophical question or answer because in this country we treat housing as a way of storing wealth. We don't treat it as a way of providing welfare. Um, And, you know, you think about the, the kind of points on the wheel that people talk about in terms of well-being, having a job, contributing, having an education, having health. None of those are possible without housing. You know, you can argue which ones of the others come first, but I would argue very strongly that all of them are impossible without housing. So we should really be seeing this as the, this is the basis of health, the basis of well-being, and yet so much we see it as the basis of wealth generation. And so we tie up a lot of money instead of um, into generating housing and providing housing, we tie it up into um, tax benefits and uh, tax um, concessions to encourage people to to invest. And I'd certainly like to, you know, we might we might get later to exploring untangling the individual landlord and the individual tenant, which I think would be helpful. Um, But the other issue is that we've seen a huge diminishment of public housing. So many of our most public figures um, will talk very publicly, and I'm thinking of the likes of Stan Grant and of um, Jennifer Westacott, who talk very publicly about what public housing meant to them. Uh, You know, families who were able to access public housing, we've just seen that fall way, way, way behind. And, you know, in terms of numbers and the amount of public housing that is there is minimal and that that is is a very low quality now such that state governments are finding it very very difficult to keep up maintenance and things like that. So I think I think there's a, a fundamentally uh, a fundamental fault in how we view housing in our in our society. Casey that was such a difficult question that I actually wondered if it was fair to ask it of you. <laughs> I'm so glad I did because that was such a powerful piece of analysis. Um, Listeners, we're going to take a short break now and then we're going to continue this incredibly important conversation with Casey Chambers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Casey Chambers, the Executive Director of Anglicare Australia, talking about housing in, in a conversation which so far has proven itself to be an extraordinary one. Before the break, we've been talking about some of the reasons for Australia's housing affordability crisis, and and I think getting extraordinary insight into the lived experience of those who are in a vulnerable position with respect to housing availability. In the second half, we're going to start to talk about some of the solutions. Uh, In the most recent federal budget, our mini-budget in October, Treasurer Jim Chalmers announced a new national housing accord, which he called a landmark agreement to address one of our nation's biggest economic challenges, the supply and affordability of housing. The accord's aim is to build one million new, well-located homes over five years and involves all levels of government, investors and the construction sector. Casey, I would love to hear your thoughts on the housing accord. Do you think this scheme will make a difference? I'm going to have a bet both ways. I think it can, uh, but I don't think it will on its own as it stands at the moment. Um, One of the issues has been that housing is immensely complicated. It involves every level of government. Uh, And so to see all the governments um, and all those levels lined up is just incredible. Uh, it, it will, I believe, provide a platform for possibilities. But as one person put it, you can't live in a possibility. So, um, you know, th- th- there are good things. There are really good things. And I think if we see this as a foundation, then that's a very strong start. But we do need to see something built on that, if you'll forgive the pun. Um I guess the, the, the issue is that they are talking about well-located houses, and that, that is important, but never has the word affordable housing come in. So we feel that we'll really need to have some legislation that ties people to building affordable housing, because if this is left to private builders and private developers, then all the, um, uh, I guess, all the motivation is to build the typical four-bedroom, two-bathroom, two-carport kind of thing, the, the sort of thing I call a 4B2B2, um, which, which is expensive and probably not entirely necessary for everybody. Um, so that, that's one of the issues. The other issue is that we don't really, you know, you can argue about whether we have an issue of housing supply in this country or whether we have an issue of a supply of affordable housing. So that really is where we need to be targeting this. Um, it has been pointed out that in the last five years to the pandemic, we built a million new homes anyway. So this is the same number that are, that are being promised. Um, so we need to make sure that there are a million houses that wouldn't have been built anyway and that they're affordable. The opposition Treasury spokesman Angus Taylor called the one million homes goal a, a target without a plan and some have criticised the announcement as being light on detail. Um, while in other quarters it's it's been praised as, a, as a, an incredibly important step forward, as, as you've noted. This is, is clearly something that the government's driving um, and that the community sector has long advocated for, at least in terms of, of a, a clear plan. What's the role of the private sector here and how would you like to see government working together with not just the community sector but also industry um, to address issues not just of supply but also of affordability? 
Yeah, and, and if I can come back to just something there in your question, Sharon, certainly the other thing that we welcome that we've been nagging the government about for years is, you know, talking about housing. There was no mention of housing in the last government's last budget, for example. We now have a housing minister, we now have a national housing plan, and we have this accord. So, you know, we've, we've got the jigsaw pieces in 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 position. So that that's that's the, the positive. Um the, the issue, I guess, again, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of if housing is a wealth builder, um, then people will build the houses that people can make wealth out of. And if anybody's ever been to a financial planner, they will tell you the exact size, shape and location of house that you can buy to make the most money on by negative gearing and get the right depreciation schedule. Uh, it's all worked out. There's a, there's a huge formula for it. So we do need to put some incentives in place which will assist the private market in building houses that are needed. And look, we could do great things. And, and you know, some of this accord, there's some good stuff behind the the, the headlines, you know, that there is some um, stuff about the, the construction sector. Peak bodies will involve a set number of apprentices. We will see some training. You know, so if we put those kind of things in place, if, if we put into place the utilisation of um, you know, some some older workers back back on the job, back on the tools uh, as as apprentice trainers. You know, there's there's some stuff we can do, but yeah, we certainly need the private sector in here. I would also like to see the quasi private sector, the superannuation boards. Um, it, it's a bit of a as, as a as a POM coming into Australia, it's a bit of a, um, a mystery to me why we put the superannuation, all that money into the profits of private funds. When you think about it, actuaries know exactly how much money we could have from each person. They know how long I'm going to live. Not me personally, but a person with my background, with my hair colour, with my degree in whatever, they know how long I'm going to live. So they know how long they've got my money for. Um, those superannuation companies uh, really um, I think, you know, they've got a lot of money. That That's somewhere we could be looking at for investment. And, of course, it's in their interest, too, to have people having housing as, as they retire. So I think the, the, the role of the private sector is going to be around having them that, that, that statement about in the right location, well located, that will keep the private sector involved um, because we don't have big corporate builders in every small town. Um, but I do think we'll need to in build incentives into this to make sure that we get affordable housing, not the kind of housing that, that makes money for private investors. Casey, I think you've brought up a number of the themes that certainly emerged in the conversations we've had around the federal budget so far, which is that extraordinary shift in language, the fact that we can use the words like housing, we can use words like climate change, we can even put the two things together and deal with two problems at the same time. There, there is this extraordinary opportunity of hope. Some of what you were beginning to touch on here is politically complex territory, though. And I'm thinking about the 2019 election when Bill Shorten, of course, began a conversation with the Australian population around negative gearing as a campaign issue. In the context of housing, negative gearing is, of course, the tax offset that allows investors to use losses on an investment property to reduce their taxable income. And the ALP at the time said that it was contributing to the affordability issue. The political consequences of this may have played a role in that election result, and so the politics are complex. 
But I'd be interested in your thoughts, and I think you've touched on already a little bit on this. Can we address housing affordability and availability uh, without starting to look at some of these financial structures behind uh, our use of housing in the Australian context? I I don't think that we can. Um, I think... Yeah, I think the time is possibly right, maybe not this term, but the next term of government for a bigger conversation about tax. We've seen it with the stage three tax cuts. Um, There was a time there in that conversation where it seemed like the only person that was sticking to them was was the Treasurer and the Prime Minister because they were saying we made a promise um, to do this. Uh, The rest of the community seemed to be saying, yeah, maybe, but look, times have changed. Maybe there's a more complex conversation we can have around those stage three tax cuts, which, you know, it's worth saying are going to remove $254 billion out of the economy over the next decade. That's stuff we could we could use in the housing area. But, um, you know, there, there's some stuff there that we could do. We could think about the leaks in the tax system that do take out a lot of money in the, the high-end superannuation concessions, in the high-end um, the capital gains tax and negative gearing, particularly with housing. The other thing that we could do is, um, you know, at the moment, the way the private sector market works is that the landlord and tenant are inextricably linked. Uh, And so your housing is dependent on that landlord continuing to have that property available. We could make some tax changes and perhaps some more incentives for more uh, institutional renting, where perhaps you know you might buy into uh, a twentieth share of twenty dwellings, um, and that way, you know, I, I'm not linked to my landlord. If my landlord needs that place back because he, he's become terminally ill, or because his daughter's returning from an overseas holiday, both of which we've heard in the last week or two as stories about why people need those properties back, uh, that doesn't mean that there's a great security for me as a tenant, say. Um, and I probably haven't explained that quite so well. But uh, I think if we if we had a different tax treatment that incentivised people into that, if, if we are so uh, committed to investing in property in Australia, it, it's a cultural um, norm that, you know, brick, bricks are a good thing. Uh, so that, if that's where we're at, then we could incentivise it differently. Casey, I think you've just mapped out such a a powerful uh, picture of the kinds of steps that we could start to take. And of course, housing is is part of the story and a critical part of the story. Um, But there are other pieces to this picture as well. And and something that is striking when one reads Anglicare's mental snapshot, but also, you know, other analysis of of why things are so difficult for some parts of the parts of our community is that the problem is not just that housing is so expensive, but also that Australia's social security payments are so incredibly low. Um, and as you pointed out, that that of those tens of thousands of listings, just seven were affordable for a single person on JobSeeker um, and only one affordable for someone on youth allowance. This theme of, of interconnectedness has come up in both our previous discussions around housing. And of course, housing policy isn't just about houses. It's also related to climate policy. It's related to human rights, to disability policy, um, to poverty and inequality, to to people's health and well-being. And having safe and affordable housing 
is such a fundamental part of our lives, as, as you've so powerfully explained to us. The National Housing Accord is meant to bring people together to address supply particularly, but how can we shift our thinking in policy to ensure that we're not just constructing buildings, but that we're building an infrastructure of care and compassion, and that we're also building community? You know, we sometimes see houses built as kind of little concrete boxes with, with very little connecting them. How, as we think about our, our pathway forward, can care, compassion and community be kind of built into the building of houses? Yeah, I think you've really hit on something there, Sharon. And, and you know, that, that thing about making a house a home and and about community. Um, I... I don't feel that many of our houses build community. We we see typically new builds. Um, what's on the front of the house is the garage, uh, so you don't see anyone. You know, you don't. There's nobody has to come out even to put something in the bin. Um, and I think we saw that again during the pandemic. There were so many experiments. I, I can't wait for the PhDs to come out of out of this. But you know, so many people realised how little they knew their neighbours um, and how little they actually community they had around around their houses. Um, we we have just recently done some research with older renters, and this this sounds like a bit of a digression, but we talked to them about what they what they what their aspirations were for where they wanted to age, um, and, and essentially, like everyone else, they wanted to age at home, but because they were renting, they knew that they probably couldn't. And, and you know, that that's really very sad. And certainly one of the areas, I don't want to correct you or add to you, but one of the areas that's inextricably linked to housing policy is aged care and ageing, because all of our aged care is pretty much predicated on you having a house to sell if you're going into residential aged care, or a home that is suitable to receive in-home care within. And there, there's a, there's a list of things that make that not suitable often in the private rental market, including climate and adaptations, um, so adaptions to the house, that kind of thing. Um, but what we heard from people when we actually spoke to them, and they were mainly women in this situation, was they really wanted something that was a bit like a retirement village, but was affordable for renters. They wanted something where there was a bit of community, um, where there was some incidental community, but also gardens, space. Um, things that looked inwards uh, within the community. So I think we, again, I think leaving that type of building, if we're going to build these million new homes and we we take the accord at its best and say, okay, these are going to be a million different homes and they're going to be well located, the best that we can expect the, the private sector to do is to build what they know how to build, which isn't going to necessarily build community. So I come back again to thinking we really need to incentivize them, them to do this. But we also need to think about whether as human beings we're really made to live within four walls that is not linked to a street, not linked to a park and any of those kind of things where it's hard for us to see each other's children where, you know, we, we just don't know our neighbours you know, all those kind of things have, have sort of fallen apart. Now, some of the old public housing blocks could have built that, but um, they, they've fallen into to disrepair as well. So I think there is something. This isn't just about well-located houses. We need to make sure that they're, they're built well. And 
you know, we, we know how to do this. The, the, um, the social geographers can tell us, the, um, the community specialists can tell us. You know, there are even, I know, uh, figures about exactly how far anyone should have to walk before there's a, a park bench available for them. Um, so older people can go for longer walks in the suburbs, even things like public toilets. You know, we, we need to make sure that these kind of things exist so that people are encouraged to walk around their neighbourhood and know each other. Um, and then I think we might find that housing becomes a bit more of, of, of a welfare than a wealth generator. Casey, I could keep talking to you about housing for a very long time. I it's so fascinating. This is the first time on Policy Forum Pod that we've addressed the issues around housing, um, particularly through a mini series, although it's an issue that comes up in quite a lot of our other conversations. And it's so interesting to see what a core issue it is into so many of the other policy areas that, that affect lives. So it's been extraordinary listening to your words of wisdom and to the experiences that you've shared with us. Uh, we often ask uh, a difficult, uh, sometimes uh, otherwise, question to finish up with, um, and you've heard it before, but in this time of possibility, that platform of possibility uh, that in which we are currently finding ourselves, what is your number one piece of advice for policymakers when we're thinking about the, the challenge of housing in Australia today? Um, this sounds like a cop-out. It sounds like I'm going back over old ground, but it is understand housing as a core citizen's welfare and right because if we did that, we would fund it correctly, we would understand it correctly, um, and we would see it. I, 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 it just blows my mind that as a society we don't think housing is important, that how we can't think we're just failing uh, as policymakers if there aren't enough houses for people and good houses. So I think fundamentally to understand housing as a human right, as a well-being to citizens, and as a marker of a really decent civilised society. And then I think the other pieces would fall into place. Casey Chambers, thank you so much for your words of wisdom and extraordinary conversation again, and one I really hope we come back to in the future. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, guys. Anna Greta, it is always such a privilege to have Casey on the show. She is genuinely one of our our thought leaders, you know, in the way she thinks about issues of of social justice, of, of equality and equity and and of human rights. It's always an extraordinary conversation. And that conversation I think was remarkable. What were your thoughts? There are many parts of today's conversation that I'm going to find myself going over and over. Uh, I'm sure that I will reflect on the numbers that were presented to us at the beginning of the conversation, that access and affordability crisis uh, in the Australian population is an extraordinary one. And remembering Casey's opening comment that one in 19 Australians may need to have access with Anglicare Australia and their services uh, because of the challenges that they face. Casey did an extraordinary job of weaving together the complexity of different policy areas and the way that these can be seen and addressed or even magnified, made worse through housing, through housing availability, through housing quality, through the housing location. And I'm again reminded that housing should be and absolutely is a central health issue. Housing protects us against temperature variability in weather events, and we see this at the moment as we're watching more extreme weather events unfolding across the east coast of Australia. 
Housing creates the environment in which we can be safe, where we can rest and be restored in order to continue on with our lives, places where we can connect with friends and families. But housing also creates our communities, this social structure that preserve and protect us, particularly during times of challenge, like a pandemic or a natural disaster. Housing's a core element of what makes a good life and a dignified life, a life in which we can be care, care and be cared for, in which we can connect and contribute. And it should be much more prominently seen in the policy uh, discussions that we have. And, and I, I'm so glad that we're doing this mini-series, Sharon, talking about the complexity of, of housing, because those final words that Casey offered us, I think, are remarkable, that if we can contend with the challenge of housing, if we begin to recognise its central importance in providing people with meaningful lives, uh, that good access to good housing is an essential component of this, if we can address that, so many other benefits will flow from there. It was, it, this was a truly remarkable conversation today. It really was a, an incredible conversation, Anna Greta. And, you know, there are a number of things that struck me, but one of the, the things that really struck me was the, the points that Casey raised in relation to aged care and the work that Anglicare has done around aging in place and our, our absolute failure to think about some of these issues. And to me, this is such a powerful example of the ways in which we so often concentrate our attention and our resources on the wrong aspect of the problem. And we tend to focus a great deal of attention on institutional aged care, and we know all the problems of that system. And yet what we're not focusing on, and what we could and should be far more focused on, is how people can be supported to age with dignity and with care in their own homes, whether those homes are actually owned by them or whether they're rental properties. And I found it heartbreaking to hear Casey talking about the the path that is before older Australians um, when they're renting and they're no longer able to afford that rent. I mean, that's a, a really terrible situation. And, of course, we have an overloaded aged care institutional system when we don't support people to live in their own homes so it's it's just such a powerful example of how we have things around the wrong way. Mm. Um, and I think Casey mapped so powerfully on the many issues that she covered, um, the, the concrete steps that we can take to bring about change. But central to that and incredibly important, I think, is to transform attitudes and to reclaim values of decency and, of course, as we so often say, Anna Greta, values of care. You know, Casey's last point that, that we need to think differently is so fundamentally important. We need to think about housing as a human rights issue. We need to think about it as a social justice issue. And in John Falzon's words, we need to stop thinking about it as a speculative sport. <laughs> so many words of wisdom that come through this podcast that I'm reminded of that public health analogy that we do focus our attention at the bottom of the cliff and all we really need to do is spend a little bit more time looking at the cliff face and understanding the dynamics that really do put peace people in places of precarity. And these are policy choices. Um, and I'm remembering our conversation with Catherine Trebek, our wellbeing economic analysis expert, 
Um, and her framing that so much of what we do is in response to other policy failure, uh, this concept of demand failure um, or failure demand. It's an extraordinarily powerful one and remind. And I think the housing discussion today again has highlighted that benefit of, of looking up, going back to the root cause and changing the way that we think about policy problems. Yeah, I think that's so right, Anna Greta. And, you know, many of these conversations are, are confronting and they can be rather depressing. But we are also seeing, we have seen through the conversations we've had around housing and the other conversations that we've had over the course of the last several months, that there are pathways forward. Um, and we are now, I think, having conversations of hope and optimism, but also conversations of change. And I think that is so incredibly important. And of course, we will continue to contribute to and perhaps even lead some of those conversations for change here on the pod. Um, but for our, our listeners, please do join us again next week. We will be back to talk more about some of these pressing issues. We will leave a link to the publications we've discussed in our show notes. And there are a number of incredibly important reports that Anglicare has, has produced over recent months that you can find there. As always, we love hearing from you, our dear listeners, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum. Send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or join us on Facebook and you can just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us. We will be back, of course, again next week. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, look forward to seeing you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.